I finally was after writing this, this story, even though it's such a small part, was able to say, okay, this stuff happened to me instead of just constantly brushing it under the carpet or covering it up. Welcome to episode 369 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Michaela, Delette, Chris, Frida, Beth, Christina, and Alba. They used the donation button on our website. Thank you, Michaela, Delette, Chris, Frida, Beth, Christina, and Alba for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that in this show, we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During the show, we will share our experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you'll find something in sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer. I'm your host today. Joining me today is Lisa. Welcome, Lisa. Hello. Hi, Spencer. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for for offering to uh, share your experience, your recovery experience. In our conversation today, there is some mention of emotional, physical, and sexual abuse. So I want to leave that, that content warning for you. We like to open with a reading, and you have picked one here. I picked an excerpt from How Al-Anon Works, and this is an excerpt from Chapter 20 about the fifth step. My fifth step, when I admitted to God, to myself, and to my sponsor, the exact nature of my wrongs was the most cathartic, the most cleansing experience I had ever had in my life. It was the first time I had ever been really honest about myself, even though I had grown up in a religious tradition of which confession was a part. What I learned from the fifth step is that the shame and judgment that had hampered me for so many years were not necessarily a part of life, but acceptance and accountability were. What a liberation. This experience taught me that my defects are the same as my assets, except that they have been exaggerated to the point of obsession. The perfectionism that I had all my life was simply an obsessive desire for excellence. Excellence is wonderful. Perfectionism, not so good. Distrustfulness and cynicism were obsessive forms of self-protection. For a long time, it was appropriate to protect myself. Although I wasn't consciously aware of it, I was very fearful about what had happened to me in the past and what might happen again. But once the past abuse was uncovered and I was able to share what had happened, it lost the power to control me, and I lost the need to keep people at such a great distance. After the fifth step, I thought I was entirely ready to have God remove all of these defects of character. And that is chapter 28 in the second half of the book where there's member shares, is that right? You wrote to me offering to share some experience, strength, and hope. What you said was you've written a novel titled Slanted and Disenchanted. Interesting title, which is about a daughter of an alcoholic and addresses many of the themes and the behaviors of those who've been raised in an alcoholic home. Yep, that's exactly it. But we're actually not here to talk about the book, but about your story and how writing that book has helped you to heal. So let's start with a bit of your story. Once again, I want to thank you for having me, and I'm going to start from the beginning. We're going to go back 40 years before the book was published. I'm going to introduce myself again. I'm Lisa, a grateful member of Al-Anon. My story begins in New York City in the 1980s. New York in the 80s was like such a tension-filled moment for the city. 
it felt sort of like an aftermath of the recklessness of the 70s. On my way to school, I'd step on used crack pipes, graphic flyers, pornography. There was just this overall sense of distrust among the people that like it really did trickle down to the children that were brought up there at the time. Both of my parents were alcoholics, but they split when I was only two because my dad went into rehab and then continued recovery for the rest of his life. This left my mom as a single working mom raising two kids in New York City at the age of 20. I just remember at a really young age seeing her crying at the kitchen table. And even though I was like so young, I remember already I wanted to fix it. I somehow felt like I was causing her this unhappiness. So already I had these like this feeling of it's my fault. I already was like absorbing the blame. And I thought I had to have been like three years old. She then got a boyfriend who I learned later in life was a cocaine dealer. And he became our de facto stepfather. He had this authority over our home that looking back now as an adult, it like makes absolutely no sense because who was this guy? He was a stranger. And he threatened my father who didn't live that far from us. He lived on the Upper West Side, still in Manhattan. And he got a recovery girlfriend and he was like very involved in um, his 12-step fellowship on the Upper West Side. But because of this man, this boyfriend, I was no longer allowed to acknowledge my father. He became George. That was his name. And even to this day, like even referring to my own father, who's now deceased, as dad, it just feels out of place. And it amazes me that like the stranger in our lives could easily manipulate the dynamics of our family. In the first grade, like I have this memory, we had to share with our class what our dad stood for living. And in front of everyone, I said, my dad is a recovering alcoholic, thinking it was totally normal answer because nobody bothered to tell me anything about my real dad. So I had to learn about him later on on the life through my own healing. And I had to definitely resolve that. But as a child, I was pulled apart away from him. When my mother was working and I was alone with this fake stepdad, she would lock me in hallway closets. He would take my birthday presents that my grandparents gave me and put them on a high shelf so I could see them, but not play with them. Which as a child, I took it as being, a, I was undeserving of like even my own birthday presents. He would throw me in the air where I'd hit the ceiling and drop me on the hardwood floor. And a few times he stripped my clothing off and locked me outside of my apartment where I had to explain to my senior citizen neighbor that I was a terrible person. I couldn't have been more than five years old. And this is, again, this is New York City. And something could have happened to me, but no one cared. So while I was enduring like this psychological trauma, my brother, who is a year or two older than me, was dealing with the physical abuse involving belts and beatings. And this man, he also put us under this like extreme physical distress where we were forced to do military-style training, like push-ups, squats, just exercises that were really challenging for our tiny bodies. But we were afraid of being hit again, so we tried our best with our legs shaking under the pressure to, to do these exercises. But already at a, a young age, humiliation was already instilled in my like emotional DNA, guilt, being feeling unworthy, just everything. Before even like the age of five, weekends in our apartment were just alcohol and drug fueled with their friends talking really loud in the living room, ripping lines of cocaine way into the night. And then on several occasions, I was woken up by violent fighting where the cops had been called. And like from my bedroom, I would see the New York City police officers in our living room that was torn apart, like we had been robbed, plants knocked over, pictures broken because my mom and stepdad got into some drunken fight, I guess. I don't know really what had happened. I never really asked. But even in those moments, 
I blamed myself. So when the cops, I knew the cops were going to come into our rooms. I remember I would just like tidy my room up really quickly, make my bed to show them that, no, we're really, we're a normal family. This doesn't always happen. And I remember going into like cover-up mode for these police officers that are seeing a very dysfunctional home. But I somehow felt like I had to portray that we are like a happy family, even though we weren't. I missed out really on like large chunks of a normal childhood. I didn't know what a play date was. I never had birthday parties with friends. I was never read to before bed. I don't even have memories of eating breakfast before school. Thankfully, we wore uniforms to school, so I didn't have to worry about getting dressed. I was already into self-parenting mode by the time I was like six or seven. I'm the only real light in my life was seeing my grandparents out on Long Island, but I never told them about the abuse because I wanted to protect them. But also part of me thought that it wasn't abuse. Like maybe if I acted differently or if I was less this or more that, my family would stop acting like this and they would just be nice. I guess I knew my family loved me. I, I always knew that, but I just wanted them to be nice to me. And whenever I expressed any kind of like, any emotion. I was told I was being dramatic or basically everything was told it was my fault. And on top of me already thinking it was my fault. And I carried a lot of weight on my shoulders by the time I was like five or six years old. Like I just, I was learning how to survive at such a young age. That's the, what happened one year when I was about seven, I was at summer camp and with one, all the girls made fun of me because I wore the same clothes every day because it wasn't that I didn't have clothes. I had clothes. I just didn't have someone reminding me that I had already worn the same thing three times that week because I just didn't have time for these kinds of details. Again, I was in like survival mode. So clothing was frivolous. Um, But something else happened that summer. I was changing with a friend of mine and she asked me what was on my back and I didn't know what she was talking about. So we went to the mirror in the little locker room and up and down my backside were black and blue marks. And I was just in shock. And I guess I had been used to being shit so much that it just didn't occur to me that I, there would, it would leave a mark. And she told me that I was being abused and that I should call the police. I was mortified. I got dressed and I never talked about it with anyone. I think that memory just resurfaced like a week ago. And I just started remembering. I'm starting to remember all these little things. But I just knew, I guess, if I spoke up, I'd get blamed or told again I was being dramatic because that's how my voice was silenced. I was told I was always being overly emotional. And to this day, I still, I don't know who did those marks. I don't know. I'm assuming my stepdad. I don't know. But I blocked out that trauma because I, I just felt like I had to keep moving forward, keep moving forward, just forget about what happened in the past, move forward. Again, at this point, I'm like eight. Every one of these like events just strengthened my survival mechanisms as well as formed a hard exterior. I felt like I could take it because I believed this was the life I deserved. But when I turned 10 years old, tragedy struck our family and we moved out to Long Island. This was supposed to be when everything changed. I was so relieved because a part of me blamed New York City for my childhood. And I thought a move to Long Island to live next door to my grandparents would change everything. So I went from a small, diverse Catholic school to a public school on Ireland where the moms didn't work and the dads had shiny sports cars. And that first day of school, I remember it felt so like hostile. I didn't look like anyone else. All the girls were so polished, with their designer clothes, their scrunchies or expensive haircuts. And I looked like a girl from New York City wearing her mom's 70 striped sweatshirt, which I still have, my brother's hand-me-down jeans and Converse, which now I know sounds like a cool outfit, but this is 1991. 
Nirvana's Nevermind hadn't even come out yet. So we needed another year before grunge would take off. And even still, Long Island would still be a year behind the trend. So I looked like a rough city girl. This was also around the time when my stepfather began to sexually abuse me. He'd wait until my mom was passed out and my defenses were down, which means while I was sleeping, and I'd wake up to him being really inappropriate. At first, I would pretend I was sleeping just to get him to stop. And when he wouldn't, I would just, I'd wake up and be like, can we just play it off? And when my mom was at work, she also liked to have conversations with me in the kitchen and show me his genitals, which to this day, I resent because he totally robbed me of like my coming of age where that's something I had to work through once I started getting into my own relationships with, with people. But on Long Island, the drinking in the house continued and my new school contacted my mom because my grades weren't up to par. So I had to take some placement exams. I underperformed in every subject but English. But at the time, I was around 10, my big dream was to learn another language. I felt like if I could speak another language, maybe I could be someone else. And if I was someone else, none of these things were happening to me. So at random, I chose French, a subject my school offered. But after a month of classes, I was removed from it. And when I asked why, I was told by the guidance counselor that I would never need it in real life and that I wasn't smart enough to process another language. I am speaking to you right now from France, where French is a very necessary language. And I learned 10 years ago that actually I am smart enough to learn another language. But my whole teenage life, I thought I was stupid. And I was put into very remedial classes because I didn't have time for homework. I didn't have time to study for tests at home. I was coming home to survive. I never knew what I was walking into. The unpredictability was just so intense that school didn't matter. It was like, am I going to get hit? Am I going to get yelled at? Am I going to get molested? I didn't know. The adult me sometimes wishes I could say to that preteen is that, of course, your study suffered. This isn't your fault. You're not stupid. But I thought I was stupid, thought I was undeserving, all of those things. I tried hard to fit in with the popular girls, but they wanted nothing to do with me because not only did they think I was poor, wearing hand-me-downs, I was also stupid. So I didn't really have a group of friends when I first got to Long Island. I just went from lunch table to lunch table, sitting with whoever would take me. This is when I started to escape with reading, taking advantage of my school's uh, library. I read everything and anything, like biographies on Abe Lincoln, Susan B. Anthony, middle grade horror fiction. And then I began writing short stories in my journal. And then when I was 12, I discovered punk rock. And the aforementioned Nirvana album came out. It rocked everyone off their butts. And I wanted to know more about this rebellious new band who didn't conform to the grandiose pop culture demands at the time. So I bought their biography and I read it three times while taking notes. And in this book, that like really isn't appropriate for a 12-year-old at all, I discovered feminism and feminist punk rock. And one day I went to Tara Records and I bought a CD that would change my life forever. You know, there, where there's lyrics about not accepting abuse, owning your voice, your power. And I finally confronted the problem about my stepdad. I told my mom what was going on. And like magic she asked him to leave. It was like the most incredible thing. I couldn't believe how easy it was. My mom to this day has no recollection of this conversation because I think that's her own personal trauma. But I could tell you what room we were in, what time of day it was, because it's just so clear to me. But he was asked to leave. He called me a whore. 
and then moved out. Can I ask what album that was that, that changed your life in that way? It was a compilation. It's, it was by a group called Bikini Kill. Okay, and yeah. Bikini Kill, and there's a song called Feels Blind, and the song is just about not being taught properly, like being brought into this world and not knowing anything. And the lyrics aren't directly about abuse, but I just know this band now it deals with stuff like that, with how women are abused in society, physically and sexually. So I became a really big fan of this group. And then there was like a sub the culture of all these other bands. But what kicked it off was this band called Bikini Kill, who taught me that I don't have to, I don't have to take it. I don't need to be abused by a man. I'm going to add that to the Spotify playlist for this episode. Seems important. Yeah. So at this point, your stepfather is leaving the picture. Not happily. Not happily. He was pretty upset. Then I started like second guessing. Did I do something wrong? Uh Uh-oh, it's my fault. All those things that you do when you're like a victim, an abuse victim. But I, whatever, I just brushed it off and I just put my headphones on. That was like a huge thing. That's mentioned in my book too. The character, she just gets lost in her headphones and in her, her fiction and just doesn't want to hear what's going on around her or feel it because then it makes it real. So after he left, her house was calm. I mean, the drinking continued, but everyone just seemed to go their own ways. But what slowly began to happen was my stepdad's abuse was now being replaced by rage and physical abuse by certain members of the family and at my expense. Mm. The abuse was enabled and downplayed. And when I pleaded that, no, I don't want to be pushed down the stairs. No, I don't want to be punched in the head. No, I don't want to be beaten on my back. No, I don't think it's normal that I'm hiding in a closet. But I was once again called traumatic and told to deal with it. Because or the, the big thing is that I was living in the past. I love that. When you mentioned that to like when any of my qualifiers, something that like bothered me, it's living in the past. Things that had happened like an hour earlier were the past, but I could get yelled at about like losing a set of house keys six months before and how that's indicative of my level of disrespect for the family. It's all very disproportionate, but there were good parts of my teen years, great parts in fact. And in fact, I got a job working in the city. I found a niche of indie rock friends and we started bands for fun. We went to see bands. None of us drank or did drugs. And we all had this really nerdy senses of humor. So with them, I could pretend I never experienced trauma and any physical abuse I was enduring could be avoided as long as I was with them. At home, I believed if I just acted differently, it wouldn't happen. But because I was brainwashed to believe that it was my fault because I did. I took everything so personally. So when like the addicts would tell me I'm a certain way, well, you're disrespectful or you cause a lot of problems. I would believe it, not realizing it's like this form of it's total projection. It took me a while. We'll get there. But, you know, I was absorbing this being like, oh, my God, like I'm the reason this is happening. So what I would do is I would stop eating in order to make myself really small, because I thought if I was smaller, they wouldn't see me, and then I would be invisible. So that's that's definitely a conversation for another fellowship I'm a part of. And that's when my perfectionism started kicking into like high gear. I just wanted my life to be so perfect because I had no control over anything outside. I had no control over my family. Did you also feel that if you could be perfect, that then... People wouldn't yell at you, wouldn't 
abuse you? Yes, I did. I, I felt that. I felt that this summer, and I would, yeah, I would just stop talking. And but even that was being misinterpreted because then all of a sudden there were like these intangible complaints, like you're putting out a bad energy. Oh, I, I see what you're thinking. I know you're thinking, and they'd be like, no, I'm thinking I have to go to the post office, but you can't apply logic in these situations. So yeah, if I was perfect, if I was quiet, if I stayed out, but not too much because I didn't want to get in trouble, the house would be calm because I thought I was the person that was making everything wrong. I was the problem. So at 18, I moved out. I was just like, okay. I fled to the West Coast. I went to school in Olympia, Washington, where... The band Bikini Kill came from. That's not a coincidence. It followed in that path. And then I eventually I made my way down to LA where I met some of the most important people of my life or family to this day. Like I met the landlady of my building who has been sober for over 30 years and she kind of became like my mom. So that was just a really great part of just getting away from my my upbringing, what I noticed was my upbringing had an impact on dating. Dating was always weird because I'd be like attracted to guys who would let me do all the work, making me feel like they were doing me some kind of favor. Or it'd be the reverse. I'd completely dismiss a nice guy because he wasn't treating me with indifference. So I just didn't really meet the right people because it was mostly my mindset. It was just attracting not nice people. At 25, I had to go back to the homestead because we had a we had a tragedy in the family. My mom's sister died, and I had to go back to Grey Gardens. That's what I call my family's house on Long Island. So I moved back. Now I wasn't a 12 year old like assault victim. Now I was a 25 year old woman who had been taking care of herself, and I was like I felt strong enough to be like to go back to go back into that family dynamic. What I didn't realize was that the disease of alcoholism had settled very comfortably in the family. Well, like a disease, like what it is. The logic no longer mattered. Everything became about how the alcoholics were feeling. Anybody else be damned because the alcoholics were speaking. I was not prepared for that. Anything could be used as a weapon. If I said something and it wasn't in the right tone, which looked back, which looking back is such a joke because I had to build a hard exterior. And now as an adult, I was being criticized for not being soft enough. It was just like this, these like mind games that I was just like being, I mean, you get to a point where you're like, is it me? I still, I, but I didn't know that I was dealing with the disease and that the disease is incapable of taking any responsibility. And I just thought my family was being ridiculous and like and being mean. So I jumped in the ring every time with the disease, not realizing that I would never win. If this, this is like a, a moment in my work, she says, if I was quiet and just listened, I would be accused of not caring. If I applied logic, I was accused of having an answer for everything. If I apologized, I was placating. And before I knew it, I was back in the loopy alcoholic merry-go-round talking about something that happened in 1998. And that's, I just call it the merry-go-round. And it's just so easy to get on it because it's like, all you have to hear is one word. You were out of control. And then you're just like, what do you mean? You're out of And you just, and, and it's nonstop. And it's so hard to get off. It's so hard to get off because it's just, you're just like, yeah, you just keep throwing stuff in. But you did this. No, you did that. Oh, it's so irritating. I think at one point I started pull, literally trying to pull my hair out because I just mm-hmm. was so frustrated. I'm, I'm reminded of a 
metaphor that Father Tom W. uses, alcoholism is like a dancing with a gorilla. And the dance isn't over until the gorilla is done dancing. He has this whole long story about the gorilla. Maybe I'll just go in the cage and, and vacuum a little bit because uh, it's kind of messy. And then the gorilla wants to dance and there you are. Yeah, that's pretty much it. And you get followed in other rooms and you get knocked on the door. You try and close the door. It's, it's scary at times, actually, because, you know, because some of their eyes get start getting crazy eyes. And you're like, oh, no, what, uh-oh, shoot. What I, but I still didn't know. I was dealing with alcoholism again. And I knew, okay, there's some wine going on and there's some drinking. And that's I know it's changing perceptions. Like, I knew one of the reasons, but I didn't understand what I was dealing with. Back at home, I'm in my 20s, and the violence continued until I learned that I was allowed to dial 911 without a care of what anyone thought. So once I started defending myself, then the violence stopped, except for one final episode that pushed me to my rock bottom, involving a speeding car, an oncoming truck, my face being spit on, and being blamed for basically all of the diseases in my family. I was like this, no, no, I was 26 and I had enough of hearing what a terrible person I was. So I called up my dad's recovery girlfriend who had become his recovery wife and my recovery stepmom and sadly his recovery widow. And she was just like, she didn't even want to hear the whole story. She just, just come over, like just no questions asked. She knew what I was dealing with at home for years. And I guess she had been waiting for this phone call. So I moved in with her. I slept with my legs hanging off of her love seat with cats sleeping on my head. And I have to tell you, it was glorious. We drank lattes. We, we listened to Motown on Saturday mornings. We just, it was New York City. It was the summertime. My half-brother was there. And she took me to my very first Al-Anon meeting on the Upper West Side. And I am spiritually indebted to her and forever grateful for, for her service. I, I remember being at, amazed at that first meeting, which kind of became a home meeting for a while. But I remember being amazed at how similar my story was to the other members and that there was a special language they were all speaking to describe their experiences and how accepting they were of their past. But what really like helped me see things with more clarity was the opening statement where it says that living with an alcoholic is too much for many of us. Like that... Right there, it was like when I realized that the disease was bigger than me. Yeah, this is uh, too much for most of us. Yeah, and the rest of us just haven't realized it yet. I, my experience, yes, living with alcoholism without support of some sort was definitely too much for me. But it took me a long time to figure that out. It does take a while because look at them as the person that they are, not the disease that they're they're wrestling with. <laughs> so it's like the words that are coming out of their mouth, you think it's them. It's not. These like really hurtful things that they like don't own any responsibility for. It's just it's amazing. You take it really personally. I still do. I still do. But it was just that idea like that, that I, Lisa, could not single-handedly cure the disease of alcoholism through logic and explanations like I had been for so long. So did that make sense right away to you? It did. That actually really did. I did. I was like, okay. It was kind of like, it's not me. I'm not causing this. And then that slogan, I, and it's in my office right now, have, it's printed out. I didn't cause it. I can't control it. I can't cure it. And when I heard that, it was like, ding. I was like, this is what's going on. Okay. 
I stopped thinking that this family member was doing things to me. It was the disease talking and they're like practically possessed by it. And then I truly believe, I have to believe that they don't know what they're doing. I really do love my family so much, but recovery has taught me and continues to remind me that no one is to blame and to just turn the focus around on me, on how I can change and try not to force solutions. But it's not easy. I spent a summer for trying to force solutions. I, I call it my Al-Anon relapse. I, I was on that merry-go-round once again. I, I jumped back on it and my qualifiers are very threatened by the program. They don't understand that it's not a bash fest. We're not sitting here being like, and then she did this. It happens when we're frustrated, but trying to explain. And once again, explaining got, gets me in trouble every time that, you know, it's about turning the focus back on me. And then I was called self-centered. And then I was like, okay, forget it. But the thing is like, the reason why I think alcoholics and allodonics have such like personality clashes is that a big trait of an allodonic is perfectionism, which for us in recovery, we acknowledge as self-abuse. But to an alcoholic who carries shame, our perfectionism is seen as like trying to show them up. Like I've been accused so many times of thinking I'm better or smarter and it makes me laugh because little do they know that this, like it's rooted in like a kind of self-hatred. I spent my 20s and 30s in like full force alpha mode trying to run away from my childhood by outdoing myself with like impressive jobs, world travel, dedicated yoga practice, speaking different languages, learning instruments, reading books that challenge me just to prove my childhood wrong. Like I'm not damaged because look at all these things I've done. But I'm still learning. And for me, it's a one hour at a time sort of thing. One day at a time, that's too much. But I'm like, <laughs> no, it's too much. But I'm learning easy does it. And that's actually the hardest slogan for me to apply in all of my affairs because I don't know how to be easy with myself. I never learned that. And my husband, I married a wonderful man. I didn't fall into my old patterns. I broke the chain. And he's always like, you did something really great. Enjoy the moment. Enjoy, acknowledge it. And I'm just like downplay any kind of accomplishment because I just, I was never celebrated for anything I did. Even my book that came out this summer, I think that's the root of why I went back home. I went back to Grey Gardens and I had a lot of preparation for the book. It wasn't received. It wasn't received well by my qualifiers and it was looked at as I think I'm better and smarter. And that's far from the truth if only they knew but uh that's not my that's not my problem to solve at this point right now i'm just focusing on my recovery and living each day with gratitude i'm so grateful and that's my story let's talk about not so much about the book but about why the book and how the book and what the book has meant in your recovery what inspired you to write it this is like a, high, a higher power thing. I, I swear by it. It was October 2019. I had gone back to Grey Gardens. I went back to Long Island. It was actually to uh, see my grandmother before she passed away. I still had a very strong relationship with my grandparents. I still protected them from my past. I just, when I was with them, I wanted to hear them speak. They were the wisdom of their lives. Both of my grandparents lived full lives till 90, 92 years old. So I went back to New York October 2019, 
And I, I left my family behind, so I didn't have family obligations, children. It was just me. I felt very free. And it, I hadn't been in New York in the autumn in 10 years. And autumn, I mean, we have a beautiful autumn here, but autumn in New York to me is just so invigorating. It's so beautiful. It really nourishes my soul so much. So I was there in the fall, spending time with my grandmother. We were doing things like weeding and drinking coffee and we go out to eat. We're Italian. All of a sudden we were going to get mozzarella and she goes, oh, we have to to stop at a funeral really quick. Oh, one like, oh my grandma. She goes, oh, I know, I know. Sorry, I forgot to tell you. It's just so Italian. It's typical Italian. So he did stuff like that. But my mom at the time, she was really, she was heavily drinking. And my mom lives right next door to them. And there was a, you know, heavy alcohol vodka. And that, that really changes her personality. I had started listening to this album that I was really into. It, it, at the time, it was the new Black Keys album. And I just loved it. I love that it's a two-piece band. And I was thinking a lot about this band and what, how their dynamics would be different if it was a girl in the band. So I just started writing this little story in my head as a coping mechanism to think about something else other than my mom's drinking so I just started writing this story. It really came out of nowhere. And all of a sudden, the female characters started having problems with her mom who was drinking. There is one scene in the book that did happen in real life where my mom was driving drunk. And I did want to say, I can drive. There's no problem. And that always, for some reason, triggers an argument. I was just in an Alan on Facebook page and that, that was being shared. Yes, that the how the qualifier doesn't like when you offer to drive. Again, it goes back to the sense of control. So I started writing the story. I just really didn't overthink it. I just was like letting my fingers do the work, just being like, I don't know what the story, where it's going, what it's really about, but it was about a rock band. And all of a sudden there's this theme of alcoholism involved. And I just was writing. When I got finished that first manuscript, that first draft, which was in like three months, I read it back to myself. And I said, yeah, we need a story about this because in film, especially alcoholics are betrayed as these slurring speech on the street or like Miss Hannigan and Annie, these very exaggerated versions of what really alcoholism is. And alcoholism is very verbal. It's words more than physical violence, even though that does exist. But I find that the most painful part of the disease is really the words that have been said to me most of my life. And I felt like if I had this response to reading my own manuscript, who could I reach? Maybe there's someone, a girl who's 13 or 14, and she's dealing with this, and she doesn't know what she's doing wrong. And maybe she'll find my book and say, oh, this is the disease of alcoholism. Although my character doesn't real, it's a three-part series. She's not there at understanding the disease, which that's going to come in book two, but she's dealing with it and escaping from it and depriving herself of self-care because she thinks it's her fault. Writing it, I finally was like admitted to myself after all these years, 38 years it took to admit I am a survivor of trauma. I never allowed myself to believe that because I thought admitting trauma was a sign of weakness. It made me less perfect. And now after writing the book and really taking my recovery very much more seriously than I had in the past 10 years, I'm finally saying, no, this is what makes me who I am. 
And this is what makes me a wonderful, caring person. I'm very conscious of the way you treat people, despite what my qualifiers tell me. Mm-hmm. So it was very cathartic in just getting the story out, even if a lot of it was adapted for, for fiction. Actually, my protagonist is a, a gentler story than me. I didn't include a lot of parts of my life because I just wanted to keep on the subject of just one form of abuse. Yeah. This in the book, it's verbal. I think a couple of things. First, trauma is never our fault. And I think that's a really important message that that you're giving there, that trauma is the result of things that were done to you, that happened to you, that you did not invite, that you did not cause. But it's still, in so many contexts, I see people feeling shameful about their trauma and about the effects of it on their lives, and that that impedes healing. We're in denial, I think, also. There's a denial, and then there's this idea that people won't like us if they knew what happened to us. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, maybe, yeah, absolutely. They're absolutely. going to think less of me because, because my parents hit me when I was a kid. Or it gives a sense of shame. I'm, like, embarrassed about it. Yeah, this should not have happened, and therefore I feel shame. Yes. The other thing that comes to my mind you said, well, I didn't include everything that happened to me. I feel like, I don't know if it's society or exactly what we almost in some cases in the media celebrate the extreme examples, which makes those of us who did not reach those extremes feel like, oh, I got nothing to complain about. It wasn't that bad for me. So that feels like a really wise decision on your part that... Hopefully somebody can look at that and say, yeah, that does line up with my experience. And if you had included all the other aspects of what happened, that that gives that, that person an out to say, mine's not that bad. I can continue to deal with it on my own. That's exactly it. Yeah. Just this, it's, it's a quiet disease for some people. Yes. It's quiet. It's sneaky. Aggressive is the word we like to use. It's progressive. My wife never got a DUI, never got arrested. We never had the police come to our house. That doesn't mean that I and my children were not profoundly affected by her disease. That's, yeah, that's exactly it. I chose to not do the flashy version of alcoholism because of that. And what's interesting is that when the first reviews were coming in for the book, I was asked to put a content warning on the book's description to alert readers of like difficult scenes. Hmm. And because my childhood was like 10 times more horrific than my character, Carla's, it didn't even occur to me that someone from like a loving childhood would feel assaulted by these words. So I was genuinely surprised, but I did put the warning on there. Now, but I just remember getting that message and I was like, oh, sure, of course. It just didn't even occur to me that there is. So I do alert readers. It's it's just mean words, really. It's And it's just how the character, how it affects her growing into her 20s because she's looking back on her childhood and how she felt unloved and how she's relating to this person she's in a band with. And that's a very vulnerable situation when you're making music with someone. And uh, I have that problem. Why? When I make music with someone, you know, I was playing with this guy and he's like, you have to look at me sometimes so we know that we're on the right page. And I can't do that. It's too personal. It's too close. And so I address some of those things as well. That's funny. When I'm in an 
in-person meeting, which will start to happen again for me sometime soon, when I'm sharing and when I'm listening, I'm often looking at the table or at the corner of the room. I'm not looking at the person who is speaking or at the people to whom I'm speaking. I've had to really make a conscious effort to remember, especially when we're in a meeting, there's a newcomer, we're sharing our story very personally with this newcomer, to really look towards that person so that they know that I'm sharing this with them. I'm not sharing it with the table or with my drink. And in the Zoom era, it's even harder because if I look at you on my screen, what you see is I'm looking down at the table because you're on the screen of my laptop, which is sitting on the table. If I look at my webcam, then you see me looking at you but I don't see you. You're off in the corner of my eye. Yes, that's happening. I'm looking at a, a dot right now. Yeah, I'm looking at this red dot that's that's glaring at me. But I try to make a practice of that when you know I'm not like reading something on the screen or whatever to try to make a connection with whoever's on the other end of of the camera. I don't always succeed, and I don't know where I got off on that tangent. But it, it is so much of, I think, still putting a little bit of a, a disconnect because I don't always feel comfortable with connection, but I feel a lot more comfortable with it than I used to. So that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're all pretty conditioned now, but yeah, those first few Zoom meetings, I have to tell you, I'm new to the Zoom meetings as of a month ago because I, I was going to Al-Anon here in France. Um, there was only one meeting a week. And I'm like outside of Paris. So I'm about an hour, like kind of in the countryside. But there was one meeting at a nearby hospital and it was right next door. So there was AA more in one room, Alan in another room. And it was usually a husband and a wife. <laughs> they drive together and they go into separate rooms. But the meetings were in French and I understood everything. I was able to share, but for some reason, it just didn't feel like I was getting much from the program in the second language. I didn't enjoy it that much. I don't even know how to say qualifier in French. I tried to explain <laughs> that word. And they were like, huh? And I was like, oh, okay. However, the serenity prayer sounds exactly the same to my ear in French. So then COVID happened. And I got to tell you, I thought I was like cured. I know like we go through these moments where I don't need Alan on anymore. I'm like far from the problem. Everything's fine. And so after when COVID hit, I just, I, I jumped off for a while. And then the summer happened where my qualifiers are retired now and their family members who have deceased who are keeping controlling, they use that word very lightly, the situation managing it, where it's just a free-for-all. It's like a booze fest where it's like there's no logic. I walked into that situation this summer completely unaware of, of what I was walking into. I, I was blindsided. Like when I came back at the end of the summer... I was shaking. I was shaking by what I had experienced. I couldn't like, it's like mm. end stage alcoholism at this point mm. because there are some health problems, but I was like, how am I going to do, what am I going to do? And then my, I called, of course, I called my recovery stepmom and she's go to a meeting in LA, go wherever you want. They're all on Zoom now. And I'm like, oh. And so I jumped back in. I felt, I definitely, 
I, I took a break in my recovery again because I thought I was fine. So I've been in and out of the room since 2007. When I lived in Paris, I was going to meetings frequently in Paris and they were English speaking meetings and those were great. But then once we came out here, it was just that one meeting a week. And then I definitely took a year off, but now it's Zoom. But yeah, there is that connection missing because there are like some people that I really want to talk to and like they know someone else. And when the meetings start, I go to this one meeting, there's 500 of us in, in the room. And there are some people I really want to talk to because I enjoy their shares and I, I like something about them. And then the chat's turned off. So it's been like, uh, I'm trying to talk over 40 people talking over each other in the, the before the meeting starts. So yeah, if it was in person, I'd walk over and be like, hi, person. I really enjoy what you share. I'd love to give you my phone number. But we, he, there is the moment. So what are you doing after the meeting? You went to the walk. I'll walk you to the subway or something like I used to. Yeah, that is a, a disadvantage of, of the online meeting is you don't get the person-to-person connection before and after. Yeah. Yeah, one of my meetings, we do fellowship afterwards for about 20 minutes, but I just feel like everyone is so, they know, everyone knows each other so well. And I don't know, I'm so meek. I'm always like, hi. And then everyone's talking over each other. And so I challenge myself with these big meetings to find my voice and, and I force myself to share, even though I don't like to. I'm, I'm like, my voice wavers in and out. I'm shaking. My heart's racing. I'm speaking really fast. Because I'm, I'm just challenging myself, but I do. I belong to smaller meetings with a few women, and I really I love those. Those make me feel just happy. And we do have choices now, which is wonderful. Coming back around to the book and the writing experience, I know you said that you had learned a lot about yourself writing it, at least some. What came out for you in the writing process? Because I think. In your original email to me, you talked about the writing being healing in in some ways. I think writing it and then rereading it and then rereading it and rereading it. I identified so much with this character that I created. And I finally, what I learned about myself is that I'm like a survivor of trauma and abuse. And like I said earlier, I shied away from acknowledging that not that yes it does make up who i am it does and i finally was after writing this this story even though it's such a small part was able to say okay this stuff happened to me instead of just constantly brushing it under the carpet or covering it up with a new goal like i'm gonna learn italian now so i don't have to deal with like my past now it's i still want to learn italian but like the reasons are a little more healthy it's not to hide behind another skill and that's what I was doing, just piling up skills to like prove that I am like a stable person <laughs> where it's, I can be like, you know what? Sometimes I'm not always that stable. Sometimes I don't need to get every single thing done during the day and I'm learning that through my character. And she has a perfectionism bone and together me and her are working through this problem together. Cause I'm writing the book too. And her perfectionism is coming out big time because she's now in her twenties, her mid twenties. And so we're working on it together and her, she has all the side characters who are going to eventually get her to the rooms. Spoiler alert. She's like my, she's my inner child, my character. She really is. And I'm there putting her through a hard time and I'm pulling her back out. That's cool. So there, there is definitely healing in the process for you. One of the things that I hear in, in your speaking is the way in which Creating this character, creating the experiences that this character goes through, 
has maybe helped you to view your own experiences in a new way with maybe more clarity, with a little more detachment, like detaching with love from your own childhood? Is that something that you see happening? And, is, and how has that helped if it did? For one, though, I'm definitely, there's the shame. I'm seeing the shame start, starting to finally wash away where I'm not embarrassed anymore that this is how we grew up. But yeah, definitely detaching from a lot of things, detaching from my qualifiers for sure, with love, really. When I see myself getting into the stinking thinking, as you say, I, I do my gratitude list in my head, and that always pulls pulls me out of it. But also, yes, I send love to anyone that I feel treated me inappropriately. And then again, putting that on paper, in words, just it becomes less scary. When you get the words on paper, it exits your body. And so then has less control over you. It's less scary. Because I I wrote another book, which I never published, and it was supposed to be like this light, fun Paris story. And it was just so bad. Like, it was just so, there was no heart in it, no soul. It was just stupid, really. And it, it resides very comfortably in my uh, draft folder on my, my computer. But yeah, because I was hiding. That's, that book I wrote a few years ago, I was hiding behind my truth. And the result was a really crappy story. Yeah, not not authentic. What would you wish for somebody reading your book? I broke up my readers into like three profiles. So for those of us in recovery, I hope it's a story that they can relate to, but also have fun with, because there is a fun side to the book. It's a rock band. It takes place in 2000. So there's like 90s references. There's battle of the band banter between the two characters that have like really different musical influences. So yeah, people in recovery are fun. Some of my best times were at recovery dances. I used to always do service at the recovery dances. I got down. You know, you don't need alcohol. You don't need drugs to have a good time. Everyone thinks that if you're in recovery, it's gloom, doom, gloom, and no fun and this book is super fun despite the heavy themes so for us in recovery i would like people to have fun with it for people who might need recovery or who just don't realize why things are happening maybe they'll see something in themselves and maybe get to an alateen or an alanon meeting to learn that it's not their fault and then for those not in recovery to understand that alcoholism, like what we were talking about before, isn't always this very grand expression of like self-destruction where it's derelict on the street and slurring speech or wire hangers, John Crawford stuff, where it's, it's a very sneaky, quiet disease. And a lot of it comes down to words and alcoholism. But the disease really knows what to say. It really hurts someone. And just to educate people to understand a little bit more about what it's like to be raised in an alcoholic home and then for everyone to have fun with it because yeah there is a lot of 90s stuff in it and it's there are some very funny moments and there's a lot of cultural things but in terms of what we're talking about those are the three kind of those are the wishes i have i will of course put a link to the book in the show notes which will be at the recovery.show slash 369 so that if somebody's interested they can go buy it which is not why we're here, but, you know, it also kind of is. 
I know you're not here to push your book. I, you've made that very clear. But at the same time, I know that somebody's listening right now for whom this book could really touch them. Yeah, I hope so. And if I, with my book, my name, I'm totally reachable. But if anyone ever wants to reach out to me, I, I definitely talk with some girls about recovery things on, on uh, social media through direct messaging, of course. But mm-hmm. yeah, I'm around. We're family in recovery. So that's also what I want to include. Thank you for that. And we're closing with a reminder on the theme of perfection that we strive for progress not perfection, both in our lives and in the podcast. After a short break, we will continue with our lives in recovery, where we talk about how recovery works in our daily lives. And as I do, I asked you to pick some music. So why don't you talk about one of the songs that you picked? Okay, so the first song I picked was a song called All These Things That I Have Done by The Killers. I refer to this as my Al-Anon anthem. Let's roll the credits song, if you will. There was a movie about my life, like it would end on this song. Because the lyrics feel almost customized for an overachieving Al-Anonic such as myself. Everything in the lyrics, they talk about wanting to let go, fighting a direction to perfection, reaching out for help. And then the song ends with a chant, I've got soul, but I'm not a soldier over and over and it's yes it's like really i run to this song and i'm like oh this is my song and it hits so many alanon themes that i kind of wonder if someone in the group is in the program because it's like kind of an alanon theme song in this section of the podcast we talk about our lives in recovery how have we experienced recovery recently Actually, I just came from an Eleanor meeting. It's the first Saturday in October when we're recording this. We split into two Zoom rooms. When we were meeting in person, we split into two tables. And on the first Saturday, the the Zoom room, the table that, that I have been joining since I started coming to that meeting, actually, is working very diligently through the book Blueprint for Progress, the four-step workbook. We're currently almost to the end of the book, but we're in this section where you're asked to look back at each of the individual chapters and what you learned about yourself. The topic this morning was commitment. I looked back in the book, which I had filled that in in like 2012. And one of my character assets and defects together revolve around commitment. Maybe there's more than one. I am simultaneously a commitment phobe and an overcommitter. I don't know how that goes together. I I don't like to commit on very simple things like, what are we going to have for dinner? When are you going to be home from work? These days, home from work is out the door and into the hall. But when, when I was working in an office downtown, home from work, had a very specific meeting, and, and I just didn't, what if for whatever reason, I didn't want to make the commitment. When are you going to be home from that party? And what I've learned is that in my marriage, it's much better for me to say, I'm going to be there till midnight and actually get home at 11.30 than it is to say, oh, I'm going to try to leave at 11 and get home at 11.30. 
So that's cool. Like I learned this thing and I can apply this thing and I could say, yeah, I'm going to be out till probably midnight and then I can get home before then and everything's fine. But it still is, I just don't want to. At the same time, I have committed to big things on sort of impulse at times in my life. When my son was in fourth grade, I was a member of the Cub Scouts, which the people in, in the U.S. at least are probably familiar with that. And I think he was enjoying it. It was a group of friends and they did fun things and they went on, went camping occasionally and stuff like that. And at the end of the, his fourth grade year, the person who had been leading the whole pack, I think it's called, I don't remember, that my son's den was part of. They have this, all this like wolf terminology or whatever that they use. It's cute. Or bears, maybe. Anyway, she said, I'm stepping down and nobody has stepped up to, to, to be the leader for next year. This voice in my head said, if nobody else steps up by the end of the meeting, go up and and say, you'll do it. So I did not really knowing what I was getting into, not knowing that I was stepping into a little bit of a landmine because that was the year when, again, those of us who were here at that moment, this was in the late nineties, the whole issue of the Boy Scouts kicking out people who were gay really hit the fan. And in the community I was living in, it, it hit the fan really hard. And the the public school, which had been sponsoring the PAC, said, we're not going to do this. We're not going to sponsor you. And I'm like, the kids, what about the kids? And so it, it ended up being a lot more stress and, and drama than I had expected it to be, certainly. And I did it. I think we did a reasonable job of being there for the kids, rechartering the group so it wasn't chartered through the school and so on. But... That was a five-minute decision that really had a much bigger impact than I thought it would. So one of the things that I've really been trying to do more recently, like in the last decade, is to be mindful and deliberate about what I say yes to, what I commit to, because I want to be able to really do what is right for the commitments that I make, not do them half-assed, not slide through them. And that means that I've had to learn to say no, which I also don't like to do. It's uncomfortable. Yeah. Especially for us. (laughs) It is. So that was the topic of the meeting this morning, and it was a good one for me at least. And I hope that something that I said touched other people as things that they said touched me. I think I'm going to stop there. Sounds like a good topic. And yeah, I love there's sometimes you have a meeting and you just, you log off and you, you go, that was a really good meeting. Like I, I got so, so much from it. And it's so rewarding when that happens. It happens quite uh, you know frequently, but, but when, when the topic just seems like tailor-made to, to your, to who you are, or to what you need to hear, it's just, it's just your, your higher power looking down and you're going, you need to hear this today. And you go, yeah, I, I think I do. And it feels good. It's pretty, it's amazing when that happens. So how is recovery working in your life, Lisa? 
Yeah, as I mentioned, like the Zoom meetings are really great for me because of where I am geographically. I mean, there has been talk in some of the meetings of when we go back to live meetings soon. And I'm like, no, no, we stay. But I understand that it's more it's, it's more meaningful to have me- meetings in person. I've been trying to do more service. That's been that's a huge one for me because I, I shy away from service, not because I don't want to do it by any means, but it's it's scary. Like I am working up my strength to become to be timekeeper because every meeting I'm at, for the most part, there's always a need for the timekeeper, and I that job scares the bejesus out of me because it has to do with technology and numbers and all of my like isms are at once like oh my god wait i'm stupid i can't do it and then interrupting someone like the whole thing scares me and i'm gonna work on becoming a timekeeper and then maybe a tech host so i started light i'm starting to do some readings i read the 12 steps last week and then i read an excerpt from actually how alanon works one of my meetings we're just going through that book service is a big to-do list for me. And again, that's where my perfectionism comes. Am I going to be a perfect timekeeper? And I know a lot of us have these like anxiety about doing service, but it's so satisfying when you do it. You're like, you feel accomplished and you feel part of the community too, because a lot of these bigger meetings, it's really hard to, to be like seen, even when you share. That's one thing just being a part of something. I just what I love about recovery is that no one can take it away. I, I love that because I did have one of my qualifiers on the floor last week because it was my son's birthday and I'm not trying to get my children involved in this, but I was told I was doing bad things. I was told all these things. And I just, I said to this person, I said, you know what? I'm just going to turn this over to God at this point. We're not going to see eye to eye. I'm very sorry. I said, I'm going to apologize for trying for forcing solutions. I did try and force solutions. And that went over the person's head as I knew it would. (laughs) The person was like, why did you do that? I'm in complete shock. You were out of control. And I'm going to say I wasn't. I really approached what I saw to be very unhealthy behavior And I think a very fair and sober way, but again, we're talking with disease, but I just said, you know what? I just kept saying to myself, I came to believe that a higher power greater than me will restore me to sanity. And that's what I kept saying over and loop on my head, in my head, as I'm on FaceTime, being told I'm a terrible person because you know what? I've been here before, but in the past, I would try to explain to these people that I'm not, I'm a good person. My friends like me. I'm lovable. And it's no, we're done. I'm 40 now. If you, if I'm a bad person and that's what you think, that's what you think. But that's not my problem anymore because I happen to think I'm okay. And my kids do. And my, you know, my husband does. And you just, I see my husband just going, because he comes from a household, but he, he doesn't know it about any of this. And it's just amazing. I'm like, oh shoot, you don't know. Okay. So welcome to my childhood. Let me walk you through this a little bit. And so recovery has been a godsend. Thank you. I've been, Looking ahead, it's taking a while for me to get these episodes recorded and edited and out to the internet. And so I shy away from looking ahead because it might happen that by the time I get to putting this out, the thing that I'm looking ahead to has already happened. But (laughs) I'm going to go there anyway because it won't have happened for you who are listening. A couple of people coming up with topic ideas. What topic is self-love or gentleness with myself? loving kindness towards myself as step zero. I could not have done that before 
most of the other 12 steps, but it's a wonderful topic. How are you being kinder to yourself in recovery? How are you learning to be kinder with yourself? How does this gift show up in your life? The other person who's going to be joining me in, in, a, in an upcoming episode is going to talk about being a teacher and in recovery and how those two things inform and support each other. Somebody had written in with a topic idea about teachers in recovery. And, and so we're going we're gonna to look at this from uh, the point of view of one person's experience. But if you're a teacher and you're in recovery and you'd like to share a little bit about how those overlap in your life, please do send us an email, a voicemail, or about how you have used writing in your recovery as well. And Lisa, you added a question here, and why don't you share that question with us and then tell us how people can send us feedback. Well, the foundation of the 12 steps is that you can't go it alone, that you need help, you need a support system. But before finding your fellowship, what music, literature, or even films made you feel that you might not be the only one affected by the disease of alcoholism? And you can call us and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. I just want to interrupt here because every time I do this with somebody who's not in the U.S., I think how U.S.-centric that phone number is. If you're not in the U.S., just put plus one on the front of that thing if you want to use your phone. You want me to say zero, zero, 001 before? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So how would you call that number from France? I'd go 001-734-707-8795. Okay. You can call and leave us a voicemail at 001-734-707-8795. Call right now to 001 for those out of the country, 734 734- 707-8795. You could use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. You can also send a voice memo or an email to feedback at the recovery.show. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions about today's topic of how writing heals or any of our upcoming topics. If you have a topic you'd like to discuss on the show, let us know. If you'd like advance notice for some of our topics so that you can contribute to that topic, you can sign up for our mailing list by sending an email to feedback at the recovery.show. Put email in the subject check line to make it easier to spot. And our website, as you probably have guessed, is the recovery.show, the recovery, all one word. We have all the information about the show, including notes for each episode, primarily including notes for each episode. This will be at the recovery.show slash. 369. We have links to the literature that we read from. In this case, also a link to Lisa's novel. Videos for the music we chose and or that uh, videos for the music that Lisa chose in this case. And there's also some links to other recovery podcasts and websites that we like. What is your second song? So the second song I chose is a song called Float On by a band called Modest Mouse. And I love this song because like indie rock generally isn't this like optimistic even. And this song is just poppy and upbeat about just being like, we'll be okay. One lyric is I backed my car into a cop car the other day and he just drove off. Hey, sometimes life's okay. Like just the simple. 
things. Okay. okay. We just float on, and then basically the song is about we'll just be okay. And it's just when I hear that, it's just I just hear no, it's like a punk rock version of this too shall pass. Now it's time to hear from you. Kimberly writes, I have been listening to your podcast for a few weeks now. It is really helping me during this difficult time. My husband is an alcoholic. He has struggled with it for about 30 years. He quits for months at a time, but when he starts back, it is always in secret. He lies constantly when he is actively drinking. That being said, how do I let go of control and keep the kids safe? We have seven and nine-year-old boys. I do not want him to drink and drive with our boys. He tosses judgment when he's drinking and thinks he's fine to drive. I appreciate any insight you can offer, Kimberly. This is a case where I think you have to set some clear boundaries and be willing to enforce them. And if that means not letting him drive the kids anywhere, which means that then you have to drive the kids everywhere, I think for their safety, that might be what you're going to have to do. I faced that same question I don't think I had a really good answer to it, but one of them was definitely taking it upon myself as much as possible to be the one driving when the kids needed to go places. It's the best I can give you right now, I think. Desiree writes, Good afternoon, Spencer. Before I start, I want to share some acronyms that have recently crossed my path. FOG. Do I feel or am I experiencing fear, obligation, guilt? Slip. My serenity lost its priority. That's definitely what happens when I slip. And maybe I think what that acronym is saying is that not setting priority on on serenity leads to a slip. Sounds good to me. Turn over. Trust until recovery noticeable or volatile energy resumes. Desiree says, I came up with that last one. Yeah, okay. She continues, My name is Desiree. I live in the Pacific Northwest and have been a grateful and faithful member of Al-Anon close to three years. About a year into the program, I was introduced to your podcast and only started listening this summer. And boy, the affirmations I received through you and your co-hosts, as well as the folks that write and call in to share their experience, strength, and hope have been plentiful and undeniable, and for that I am beyond grateful. This email has been months in the making. In episode 367, The Gift of Pain really solidified it was time to practice action. I have been receiving messages from a higher power causing me to think about the possibility of starting a podcast. I found the fact that the co-host recently started her own podcast as yet another blaring affirmation that I'm on the right path. And it's all thanks to the Al-Anon tools I learned by simply showing up every day. I happened to run across some Al-Anon literature I received as a newcomer and found one of my favorite pamphlets. Alcoholism, a merry-go-round named Denial. I was immediately taken back to my first weeks in Al-Anon and how the story told in this pamphlet felt so familiar. I've recently reread it and it reminds me where I was when I first entered the brooms and just how far I've come in my Al-Anon journey. I reviewed the episode list and don't see this topic has ever been discussed. I'd love to be a co-host and share my experience, strength, and hope on what for me has been such a vital piece of literature offered. I would also like to please be added to the email list. Lastly, I want to thank you for being of service and providing a safe space for recovery and spiritual growth. I consider your podcast a meeting between meetings and have found it a vital tool in my Al-Anon program. I look forward to hearing from you soon. Take care, Desiree. So topic, I'm sure we've talked about denial, but not about that particular piece of literature. 
I think that would make a good episode. So I will be in touch shortly. Nancy left a voicemail. Hi there, Spencer. My name is Nancy, and I've been a very grateful member of Al-Anon for over 25 years. I have also spent most of my life in Greenwich, Connecticut, like Eric, and now live most of the time in Florida. I started listening to your podcast in the past six months and find them such an incredible addition to my meeting and have gained so much from listening to so many different topics. I am the only member of my family who goes to Al-Anon, and that has always been the case. My adult son is my qualifier. He started drinking as a young teenager, and we did the usual threatening, punishing, yelling, totally lost as to how to deal with this. He went off to college against my will, and we ended up taking him out his sophomore year, put him in an outward bound program, and when that didn't do anything, threw him out of the house. He did end up in rehab a few times and ultimately found AA and was sober for 27 years. But as they often say, you drop one addiction and pick up another. He had many isms of the disease and unbeknownst to his wife of 18 years, his family and friends, he was a sex addict and keeping that a secret for so many years brought on severe depression and anxiety. And in the past three years, he was in and out of about 13 treatment facilities, lost his marriage, job, and reason to really exist, thinking about suicide several times. During this time, he relapsed, which almost shocked me more than the other issues, because I used to say to people, when asked if he was drinking again, absolutely not. His sobriety is foremost on his mind. Today, I am very grateful to say that because of his program, therapy, much hard work, and most of all, his higher power, he is living on his own, has a job, and sees his children. I listen to your podcast every day when I walk. So many of them really touched me. The one about no being a complete sentence, those with Eric. I just listened to number 307 today with Aaron. And I also heard something that you said that hit me like a bolt of lightning. You said that you hate the word qualifier. You refer to your qualifier as your loved one, and I had never heard that before. And I called my son and made an amends for all those years of calling him my qualifier. And then you said, but who and what qualified you to go to the meetings and go into Al-Anon? I'm not the problem. And then you learned that your anger and your rage, and I just wanted to say that I understand what qualified us to be in the meetings and be in the rooms and needed to hear that from you as well. I'm very grateful that there's a program such as Al-Anon. There's honesty, integrity, openness in the rooms. There's a program such as yours. Thank God that people like myself, can listen to as often as I'd like. I came into Al-Anon crawling and crying like so many others, not thinking I was going to make it, but little by little, working the steps, journaling, praying, being more educated. It became very much my way of life. When someone asks me how my son is, I usually reply, for today, he is good, because I have no idea what this afternoon or tomorrow could bring. But I understand that I have the courage to deal with whatever happens and know that I am never alone and that my higher power will be walking right there beside me. 
So thank you, thank you, thank you. I am forever grateful to have you and your podcast in my life as well as the program. And having had this spiritual awakening is about the best thing that could have ever happened. Thanks, Spencer. Thank you, Nancy. Jessica wrote, Good evening. I have been listening for a little over a year now, and your podcast has been a wonderful resource, keeping me sane and a great tool in my recovery. There are days I am doing great, but then my anger, resentment, sadness kick in. I try to go for a walk and listen to your podcast. I am still so new to all of this, but I am trying. Thank you for your shows. Topic idea. So I know there have to be other people out there with my story, but I've yet to hear it, and I would love to hear about people who had no idea they were in a relationship with an alcoholic and how they recovered. My story. So last year, after 20 years of marriage and knowing over the past few years our relationship had not been great and that my husband had been acting weird and seemed off for months, my husband went into the hospital being admitted with acute liver failure. This was a total shock. I had no idea he was drinking, no idea he was this sick. He was acting off, but liver failure. This was crazy. So I found out he had been drinking at work and on his way home and in secret for years. I had no idea. I was totally blindsided. He was in the hospital for a while, then discharged to an inpatient rehab program. He went into liver failure again, and long story short, he had a liver transplant on August 24th. Yes, a liver transplant. He almost died, and they were just keeping him barely alive until a liver became available. My recovery program is looking back on my past behavior and dealing with my qualifier, but not knowing at the time I was in an alcoholic relationship. I have been looking back trying to unpack all that was taking place. As you can imagine, the anger and resentment is acute. My recovery program is going forward. I am trying to let go of the years of lies, gaslighting, and my denial. How did I contribute to this situation? I want to be a better person, but man, it's hard. Thanks again for what you do. I was in denial for a long time that my wife was drinking alcoholically, but I definitely knew she drank and that at times she drank too much. So, not exactly my story. If you're listening and you have a story similar to Jessica's that you'd like to share and share about your recovery as well, let me know. Send me an email, feedback at therecovery.show, and let's set up a time to have a conversation about your story. Because I'm sure that there are many others like Jessica who really had no idea until it got really bad. Lori sent us a voice share. Hi, Spencer. This is Lori. And I wanted to share a realization that I had while I was listening to your podcast this week, not directly related to any recent topic, but it was a big realization for me. Earlier this week, I was at a meeting and somebody said something to the effect of, I'm not living with active alcoholism in my life anymore. And I thought to myself, I'm really thankful that I'm not living with alcoholism, active alcoholism in my life anymore either. And I didn't really think very much more of it. But while I was listening to your podcast this week, I suddenly realized, wait a minute, I am living with active alcoholism. My my spouse is actively drinking and he's one of my qualifiers. And that's still a big part of my life. But it was surprising to me to realize that. And it was even more surprising, as I thought about it, to realize that, that this was a surprise to me, that, that I was working under this 
idea, this feeling that I don't have active alcoholism in my life anymore. And, and I think this sort of speaks to two things. One is how deep the denial can be around alcoholism. And it's really, really powerful and really, really hard to overcome. And obviously, I have not overcome that entirely. But also, it really speaks to how powerful the program is in terms of focusing on myself. And I have made so many really positive changes in my life that although I'm still living with active alcoholism, my life is very different than it was a year ago before I started my recovery journey. Really so dramatically different that although this is still um, an active part of my life and an active part of my relationship, and there are many difficulties around that, that I can somehow slip up and forget that that that's something that I'm still living with. That was my big realization this week. Thank you so much for your podcast and just opening up this space to share. And it's really become a big part of my recovery. And I look forward to it uh, every week. And I thank you. Thank you, Laurie, for sharing your experience, strength, and hope. Cecilia wrote, first of all, thank you. Thank you for this podcast, which is of great support every single day. Thanks to Spencer's great voice, which calms me immediately upon hearing it. Thanks to all who have contributed to this podcast. My loved one, almost two years in sobriety, has ended our 27-year relationship. I've attended one year of Al-Anon. I became aware around the end of her first year of sobriety that she had changed. She seemed very detached, resentful, annoyed. She wanted to do what she wanted to do when she wanted to do it without regard to me. In all our years together, I had never been jealous. In AA, she made a special friend who unfortunately was also gay and lives 10 minutes from us. She swore the relationship was platonic, but it is someone she has a strong emotional relationship. This person is also about two and a half years into sobriety. Their relationship, I believe, impacted our working on ours. My partner could not see how spending six days out of the week with this person for up to four to six hours a day, having this person join several of her group classes, going on daily walks with her in the afternoon, texting a good morning, a good night greeting, sharing a group daily gratitude list, Going to AA meetings together should make me feel insecure about our relationship. I hit bottom trying to reconcile my feelings, being told I needed to find different outlets to fill me. I understood that to a degree, but the friendships seemed excessive. Our couples counselor, who is herself a recovering AA, did not seem to think there was anything wrong with the relationship. Am I a crazed codependent or in denial as to what was actually happening here? Of course, this is a moot point now, but I was wondering just how much can our program's vest on our individual recovery without giving more support on recovery as a couple. Wanted to hear more about what drives the sober alcoholic to the choices they make. Thank you. Cecilia, I feel for you. I don't know. I still don't understand sometimes why anybody makes the choices they do. I have to say that that the the, the relationship as you describe it sounds very intense and I would have been concerned as well if It was me on the other end. Yeah. One thing that I know is that in order for a relationship to work, in this case, the one between you and your loved one, both people have to put work into it. 
and it sounds like she wasn't. Sorry to hear that. Amy sent us a topic idea in her voicemail. Hi, Spencer. This is Amy from Petaluma. And I was just calling because I had an idea for a show, and I'm not sure if you've done it or not, but you have. But which is, I'm an Al- Al-Anon, and I've been an Al-Anon for 10 years. And my relationship with alcohol is something I've stood as a topic before at my meeting. And <clears throat> it's something that is complicated because growing up with honor who had alcoholism and he died of alcoholism, <clears throat> but also being a practical person and not a person who is actually addicted to alcohol, but also having this trauma surrounding it. And anyway, I think relationship like Al-Anon, well, relationship with alcohol is probably very complicated and I had never heard it as a topic before, so I'm not sure, but I would love to hear other people's experiences, thoughts. So what is your relationship with alcohol? I did an episode a while ago titled, Do You Drink?, which is one kind of relationship with alcohol, but I know that people in Elanon, as people not in Elanon, have very different relationships with alcohol. Some of us have a normal, I think I would say normal, healthy relationship with alcohol, in my case. Some of us never drank. Some of us stopped drinking when our loved one became sober, and some of us are somewhere else on that spectrum. And I know people who came into Al-Anon and then realized they needed to be in AA also. So what is your relationship with alcohol, and how is your recovery affecting it? How is it affecting your recovery? Let us know. Sounds like a a great episode if somebody wants to uh, co-host with me on it. That was episode 112, by the way, titled Do You Drink? M writes, Hi, Spencer. First, I would like to thank you for a fantastic podcast. The topics seem to pop up according to the problems I am facing in life. Your program has so much positive impact on my life and well-being, and I cannot thank you enough for your sharings. I just finished listening to podcast number 368, A Disease of Relationships, and I have a question I have often thought about. You mentioned in the episode, alcoholic behavior. Can you define or tell us a bit more about what alcoholic behavior is? I googled the term and read the big book to get answers, but would appreciate if you could tell us more about what alcoholic behavior is. I often struggle with seeing what behavior is alcoholic and what could be related to other illnesses such as borderline personality. Many thanks for everything and wish you all the best. Kind regards, M. Okay, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a a psychiatrist, psychologist, whatever. So I do not have a formal medical definition of alcoholic behavior in general. For me, there are characteristics that I have come to understand as being maybe common to alcoholics and addicts. And I've heard this also from recovering AAs, some of these as well. I I think the term alcoholic behavior, it's not a blanket term because everybody's individual and some people exhibit these behaviors, some people don't. But one of them And I think for my loved one, a prime one is a feeling of scarcity, a feeling of never enough. What she told me when she was drinking was that even if the whole ocean was wine, she would feel that it was not enough. And so there are behaviors that come out of that in terms of, and I'm just going to speak from my experience. I see, for example, over ordering at restaurants. 
because there might not be enough food. There's also, as an earlier correspondent wrote, this I want what I want and I want it now kind of syndrome. Like I said, I don't have a precise definition and I don't even remember exactly what we were referring to in that episode when we said that. But I would I'd bring it up in a meeting and say, I, I wonder, I've heard this term alcoholic behavior, I don't know what it means, and you probably get 20 different descriptions of what constitutes alcoholic behavior. Yeah. Oh, another one that I've heard, again, from AAs talking about a sense of drama, that everything is drama. When something minor bad happens, it's a catastrophe, that sort of thing. And that's another one that I've observed from time to time. So there's a bunch of characteristics that some of us label alcoholic behavior. I don't think we necessarily mean that in a clinical way. It's a good question. Pat left us a voicemail. Hi, Spencer. This is Pat from the West Coast commenting on the principles episode that you did with Eric. And at the beginning of it, I was really surprised to hear you say, well, they're not really outlawing specifically in Al-Anon, that it's just kind of this generalized this, that, and here and there. I had never thought of it that way because my sponsor in particular speaks about page 123 on paths to recovery. And I always thought it was strangely buried deep. But at the end of the second paragraph, it says, I came to recognize the common principles of honesty, compassion, love, humility, willingness, forgiveness, and freedom. So all these years I've been working with her and we've gone, we've probably done three different studies of each of those where we've had a day of reading and commenting on each of those principles. So it never crossed my mind that that wasn't something that everybody else in Al-Anon has as a ready reference. So for what it's worth, there's that list. I did look up principles and you're right. It's all over the place. And it's really broad in a lot of different ways. But if you want a list, it is in the literature and it's on in Paths Recovery, page 123. Okay, thanks. Bye. Thanks, Pat, for that pointer to a set of principles. It's a nice list. Thanks. And it's in the literature. Paula wrote, Hello, Spencer. My name is Paula. I'm from Louisiana. I found your podcast during COVID lockdown when my gym had to close and I was used to working out there five days a week. So I began working out at home, running especially, and listening to books and podcasts, most on alcoholism as my husband is my qualifier. Your podcast changed my perspective, my outlook, and so many more things. It is always my go-to when I can't seem to deal with it or when I need a reality check or just a lifeline. I wanted to know if there are any on the topic of a high-functioning alcoholic and or any on when your qualifier becomes very ill to their disease. My husband of 20 years has always been a heavy drinker. He is not what I would consider a typical alcoholic. He is not abusive, mean, or anything like that. He works 60-hour weeks and can drink a lot and still do his daily duties, etc. He has now been diagnosed with end-stage cirrhosis and is still sometimes drinking. Some days I feel as though I'm good. Others, I feel like the world is caving in. Thanks, Paula. Thanks for writing, Paula. That is one of those tough situations that people who drink excessively, maybe alcoholically, can bring those of us who love them to. I hope that you are also going to Al-Anon meetings and finding support locally. Having somebody you can talk to, somebody who's been there, somebody who 
can share their experience directly with you can really help in my experience. So if you haven't gone to a meeting yet, please try it out because it really helped me when I didn't know whether my loved one was going to stop drinking or not. I had support and I had tools that I had learned by hearing other people talk about what they did that helped me to not be crazy, to not be all tied up in in what was going on outside of me and to really help myself to be better. Barb wrote about episode 279, Do You Like Yourself? Hi, Spencer. With tears streaming down my face, I decided it was time to email you. I discovered your podcast a few weeks ago and want to thank you for bringing me some sanity and helping with my path to recovery. The episode, Do You Like Yourself?, really hit the nail on the head for me. I don't like myself most of the time, and the times when I do, because I've achieved such a high success that I'm on top of the world and clearly better than those around me. I'm a people pleaser with a history of overextending myself. I rarely say no. I'm a sore loser. I place great importance on being liked by others. I'm very competitive and get upset with myself when I don't win. Basically, I am not happy in my skin. I think I'm starting to realize that the turmoil within myself is not the way to achieve serenity. A little context. I am 65, the daughter of an adult child. Mom, 92, is still living. My first marriage was to an adult child, and I'm currently married to an active alcoholic whose dad dies from alcoholism. For all of my adult life, my mindset was that if I could just fix the people around me, I would be happy. You talked about the wave of sadness or something like that in this episode. That is just a normal feeling for me. It's like a tidal wave that comes over me, often when I wake up in the middle of the night. For years, I've said to myself, who are you? And maybe someday you will figure that out. I've always known about Al-Anon. My mother-in-law from my first marriage was a regular. I had the daily reader and even went to a meeting probably 40 years ago, but found it most uncomfortable and did not think it was for me. Well, I do think I'm ready now and have found a meeting to attend next week. Wish me luck that I will get there and it will truly be in person, like the website says. Thank you again for your podcasts, which have helped me to see that I do need to take better care of myself, change my mindset, and get some clarity as to who I am. When I first started listening, I was looking for help with my husband's drinking. What do I say to him? How can I get him to stop his daily drinking habits? We have no friends. You have a disease. Does your drinking concern you? But after listening to a few podcasts, I realized it was not about him, it's about me. I guess that is part of my first step of surrendering, and I thank you for getting me here. So thank you, Spencer. If you have suggestions for specific episodes for us newbies that I should listen to, I would appreciate you sending those along. Take care, and thanks again, Barb. You know, a lot of people have asked about newbie episodes, and I keep saying I should put together a list. And I don't really have a list. I would suggest any of the episodes on step one, which I'm sure there are more than one of, Powerlessness. There's that episode, What is Elanon? is episode 10. And as you heard me suggest to somebody else, I really encourage finding a meeting that resonates with you and attending regularly, making friends there, finding people that you can talk to who understand your experience and can share their own. Because I think that that is really the miracle of the program. That is the the core of the program is is one of us talking to another, as they say in the big book, one alcoholic talking to another, one alanonic talking to another. Art writes, Hi, Spencer and Megan, and all the other hosts. 
Just wanted to join the list of many people who email you to express gratitude for your podcast. I have been a member of Al-Anon for a little under four years. It had an incredibly positive impact on my life. It has exposed and opened me up to many different opportunities of growth and recovery, this podcast being one of them. Specific to this episode on relationships, I thoroughly enjoy the warmth and respect you show each other as co-hosts and us as listeners. I always walk away from listening with something to contemplate and integrate into my journey. Take care, Art. Thank you so much, Art. And thank you, Megan. And I guess I try to show warmth and respect, and I'm glad that actually comes through. Lisa, I want to thank you so much um, for coming on the podcast, for sharing your experience, strength, and hope, and your book with us. Thank you so much, Spencer, for having me. This is wonderful. And what is the, the last song that you picked? The last song is a very special artist for me. I chose This Is The Thing by Sufjan Stevens. As I said, he's very special to me because I consider him a recovery brother in a way. Not that I know him at all, but I know we share similar experiences with the family disease of alcoholism. Uh, listening to him makes me feel less alone. And when I was coming up with my third song, I was going to choose a song off his album, Carrie and Lowell, which is about most of it, not all of it, but it's an emo- his emotional response to losing his alcoholic mother. But I wanted to add something off his newly released album, A Beginner's Mind, that takes on a lighter tone, but still fits into our Eleanor themes. So in this song, This is the Thing, there's this great line that it says, hysteria grows where it was invited. Mm-hmm. And for me, that just is so perfect because I have invited hysteria so many times trying to reason with an alcoholic. And that this line is a, is a more poetic way of saying zip the lip. I can apply Alan on to anything. I'm like, this is zip the lip, but in a prettier way. But the, the, he's such, so special to me, this artist, and I, I love him very much. And uh, so I could not include him in the lineup. He has so many songs that I could have added. The themes of our program is resonant in a lot of his music. But this is his new album, so I figured it'd take something off his own. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time. Thank you.